0: Rani was martyred on the battlefield. Her departed soul was then riding a divine vehicle, moving towards the heavens. The light of her divine soul met with the divine light and the sky. She was the real heir of divinity. She was only 30 years of age. She was not a human, rather she was a divine spirit, who did come in the gesture of a female freedom fighter to give us a respectable life of light and freedom. She showed us the path of freedom and taught us the lesson of courage. She taught us what we might have learned. From the mouth of the bards we heard the tale of the courage of the Queen of Jansi, relating how gallantly she fought like a man against the British invaders. Such was the Queen of Jansi. The people of India will remember this debt of yours, O Rani Lakshmibai. May you be blessed, dear Rani. Your life sacrifice will awake an indestructible soul of freedom in our people. History may be made silent if truth is hanged or killed, or if the drinkers become victorious, or if they destroy Jansi with cannonballs. You, by yourself, be the memorial of Rani, because you have been an eternal token of courage. From the mouths of the Bandelas and Harbolas, we heard the tales of the courage of the Queen of Jansi, but how gallantly she fought like a man against the British invaders. Such was the Queen of Jansi. and welcome to the other half. Episode 3.19, Rani Lakshmi Bai of Jansi. I will not give up my Jansi. Last time we heard the interview I had with Elodie Harper on her new book, The Wolf Den. We talked about ancient Pompeii, Roman attitudes towards gender and sex, and what lessons we have and have not learned from the 1st century AD. Before that, we travelled to 19th century Eastern Europe, to tell the tale of the obscure Lithuanian countess, Amelia Plata, who fought valiantly to free her country from foreign rule. Today we travel around 30 years forward and about 3,500 miles east to northern India, to another land suffering from foreign occupation and another queen looking to free her people. We started this season on folk heroines with Boudicca of the Iceni, an indigenous queen deprived of her throne by foreign conquerors, her people oppressed and their resources being cast away for the enrichment of others. Boudicca's uprising was swift, shocking and brutal, and was the last gasp of British freedom from Roman domination. Today we go full circle, as her descendants, having thrown off Roman rule around a millennia before, sought to rule another far-off people, and another queen who tried to stop them. The extract that I read to you at the start of this episode is from Jansi Kirani, or Rani of Jansi, by the renowned Indian poet Supadra Kamari Chahan, one of the most famous works of Hindu poetry. It's not the most elegant translation into English, but it was the best I could find. Those that I read were the final two of 18 stanzas that tell her epic story. To Western audiences, she is almost entirely unknown. But to her people, she is one of their greatest heroines. In 2019 alone, there were four films and TV series about her. She is ubiquitous in books, cartoons, even nursery rhymes. Young girls dress up in her likeness, and statues of her on horseback, with her son tied on her back, have been erected in many cities across India. She is THE heroine of a conflict I always knew as the Indian Mutiny, a very Anglo-centric term, but has also been variously called the Indian Rebellion, the Great Rebellion, and, more recently, by Indian nationalists, the First War of Indian Independence. To me, the last moniker is a little misleading, but it is true that this was the first great Indian uprising against British rule, one which was only suppressed at great loss of life on both sides. There are very few conflicts on this scale that had a woman both as a leading political and military figure, which is what makes this one quite so interesting. Now, unfortunately, Westerners are not renowned for opining at great lengths on areas that make them look bad, so there is precious little on Rami Lakshmi Bai for me to draw on for this in English. Indeed, the only full-length biography in English is now over a century old. And, it will shock you to hear, I don't speak fluent Hindi. However, as I've always said, it's the absence of knowledge that makes history more interesting for me, and I am looking forward to the challenge. But before we get going, I'd like to thank everyone who has been voting on the next series topic. I'm going to keep this up for another two weeks, so if you want to sign up and have your say, now is the time to do it. Go to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast to sign up. I will reveal the winner on the last episode of the show. As I said before, this will be the last mini-series on folk heroines, but I am planning one or two final episodes just to bring it all together, as well as to share some of the stories of women who didn't quite make the cut. After that, I'll go on a bit of a summer break to recharge my batteries and do research for season four. But for now, let's dive in to colonial India. To all my new listeners, Welcome. For the rest of you, welcome back. India, the jewel in the British Empire's crown, Nelson at the Battle of the Nile, Lawrence of Arabia, the Great Game in Afghanistan, Montgomery and his Desert Rats. All of these famous battles and campaigns were all in aid of protecting British control over India, and, most importantly, its abundant natural resources. After Britain lost its American colonies, India became the bedrock on which all its commercial and imperial might was built. And it all started in 1757 in a mangrove grove in Bengal. But first, let's back up a bit and talk about what we mean by India in the years before its independence in 1947. Today, we think of it as one contiguous nation, or I guess three if you expand to the whole subcontinent and include Pakistan and Bangladesh, but let's not overcomplicate things. But one can really argue that it wasn't until Britain established its dominance over the subcontinent that this whole land whole, unless you count the Mughal Empire, which briefly controlled almost the entire subcontinent at the turn of the 18th century. The region was covered in various empires, kingdoms, and principalities, run with different customs, people speaking different languages, and adhering to different religious faiths. The name India is of Greek origin, noted by Herodotus, and comes from the river Indus. But most Indians actually call the country Bharata, after a character from Hindu scripture. Now these various realms that rule parts of India waxed and waned over time. So let's move back to that mango grove. Europeans have been trading with Indian states since around 1500 BCE, but it wasn't until 3,000 years later, in 1498 CE, that the Portuguese arrived by ship around the Cape of Good Hope. They set up trading posts, most notably at Goa, and conquered a stretch of territory along the coast. The English were next, having been entranced by stories told by Sir Francis Drake of limitless riches. But these first English expeditions weren't organised by the state. No, it was by a group of businessmen who called themselves the Merchant Adventurers. They committed around £30,000, about £4 million today in funding, and petitioned Queen Elizabeth to set up the pithily named Governor and Company of Merchants of London Trading into the East Indies. But of course today, we know it as the East India Company. Remember that trade back then was far from free, Nations would fight wars to establish mercantile monopolies over various regions, and nearly all trading disputes involved cannons and swords. You couldn't just rock up at any port in the Americas or Orient with some stuff to sell. You needed to fight your way in and kick out the guys currently selling. So in a return for a monopoly on English trade with everything between the Cape of Good Hope and Cape Horn, The East India Company would raise all the money, men and ships needed to fight this trade war and defend its interests. This means that the soldiers and the sailors served the company, not the English crown. Now the reason why I'm going back this far is for a simple purpose. British interest in India was, from the start, all about making money. The East India Company did not go there to conquer land or to rule over people. They went in there for profit, and for the rest of the time there, that remained their prime imperative. Over the next 250 years, all British affairs in the subcontinent were run not from Parliament or from the Palace, but from East India House in the City of London, which is now the Lloyds Building. The company was regulated by Parliament, but only in the broadest sense. There were frequent complaints raised in Westminster about corruption, abuse of native Indians, and general incompetence by company officials. But the system was making way too much money for way too many powerful men for anyone to rock the boat too hard. Over the years, the East India Company made alliance, treaties, and war against Indian states and other European companies and armies, but did not become the dominant force in the subcontinent until the Seven Years' War. At the 1757 Battle of Plassey, fought in a mango grove, British forces, both regular army and East India Company, defeated the Bengalis who had allied with the French, turning them into a company protectorate. The Treaty of Paris that ended the war kicked almost all other Europeans out of India, allowing the company to start a hundred years of domination. They did this through a combination of conquest and semi-voluntary subjugation. This is where an Indian ruler would accept company overlordship in return for broad local autonomy. They then became company allies and would fight alongside them in their military campaigns. Now, one of these places was Jhansi, a princely state roughly the same size as the state of Rhode Island. This was actually a creation of the company in 1804, when it was granted autonomy from the declining Maratha Empire. Located in the modern Indian state of Uttar Pradesh, it's a little over 250 miles from Delhi, and back then was a fairly unimportant state. Again, much like Rhode Island. The company recognised a guy called Shiv as the ruler of Jansi, and in return, he pledged loyalty. But, and this is the crucial bit, this did not automatically apply to his successors each of them had to essentially apply to the governor-general in Calcutta and be accepted. If not, then the territory would revert back to the company, who would then dispose of it in whichever way was advantageous to them. This later became formalised into a policy known as the Doctrine of Lapse, whereby the company would formally annex a territory if a ruler died without a male heir or was considered manifestly incompetent. This meant that the ruler of Jansi was both beholden to the company for creating their title, whilst also being essentially their vassal and dependent on them for their continued survival. Now it has to be said that Jansi wasn't exactly a well-run place. That's what comes from awarding kingdoms to your suck lackeys. In 1838, the throne passed to Gangadhar Rao who, depending on who you read, was a competent administrator who got the kingdom back on solid financial footing while investing in the arts, or a debauched slob who ran the finances into the ground and had the weird habit of playing the female lead in plays. Whatever his level of competence, the key for us is the issue of his marriage. He had been married to a woman called Ramabai, but she had died not long after they tied the knot, meaning that he needed another wife. Without a legitimate son and heir, there was every chance the company would just annex the territory. So having a child was a matter of national survival. He sent men all around the country for him to marry. And one of these groups of men arrived in the town of Varanasi to meet the father of a young girl called Mani Karnika. Annie Kanika, the subject of this episode, was born, well, we don't know for sure. Her life is shrouded in myth and legend, but her fame would only be realised later in life, and no one took the trouble to look too hard at her backstory. Most Indian sources put her birth date as 1835, while British sources generally have it happening in 1827. Antonia Fraser, in her book Warrior Queen's, puts it as 1830, but so far as I can tell, that is just her deciding to split the difference. Her birth name, Manikarnika, the first of her many names during her life, comes from one of the names of the holy river Ganges, due to the fact that she was born at a palace situated on its banks at Varanasi, which is also sometimes called Benares. Given that her name is a bit of a mouthful, throughout her childhood she was usually referred to as Manu. This link with the Ganges, considered sacred by Hindus, would later further imbue her birth with religious significance. Her father was chief political advisor to the Peshwa, think prime minister, of the Maratha Empire. Before the East India Company had started its expansion, the Maratha Empire had been the most powerful state in the subcontinent, but by the time of Manu's birth, it was in terminal decline. We basically know nothing for sure about her until Jansi men came a-knocking, but the generally accepted legend is that her horoscope spoke of amazing things and an important marriage in her future. She was apparently quite the tomboy, learning to wrestle, shoot, and duel with the boys of the palace. Some stories have her being charged friends with Nana Sahib, another future leader of the 1857 Uprising. Their difference in age makes this a little unlikely, but legends tend to prefer romantic, neat storytelling to historical fact. So let's move forward to the arrival of the emissaries from Jhansi in 1842. Depending on who you believe, Manu was somewhere between the ages of 7 and 15, and these guys clearly liked what they saw. She was of the correct family, the right caste, and her link with the Maratha Empire had the potential to put Jansi on the map. This is all conjecture, by the way. We actually literally have no idea why he chose to marry Manu. Gangadhar Rao was a widower, and getting on a bit, and so this was his last chance to sire a son and heir, and, for whatever reason, his men thought Manu was the girl for him. They were married, and as per the tradition of the Maratha Empire, she took on a married name. She chose Lakshmi Bai in honour of the Hindu deity Lakshmi, the goddess of wealth, love and beauty. However, for ease, I will continue to call her Manu for now. There is actually a legend surrounding her wedding day. Hindu brides are traditionally supposed to be meek on their wedding days, but not Manu. When the priest came to tie the ends of her various gowns together with that of her husband, as was tradition, she told them to tie them tight seems fairly innocuous to me, but at the time this was considered very forward. The match started out with great promise, but this soon turned to frustration. The purpose of the match had been to produce children to safeguard the dynasty, but this was not to be. Manu only gave birth to one child, a son, Ye, but sadly died after only three months. Not so yay. Then in 1853, her husband, Gangadhar Rao, fell seriously ill. With no natural heir available, he adopted a distant cousin, Damodar Rao, as his son. This was fairly normal under Indian tradition, as in many societies all over the world and throughout history, but it wasn't the British way. And so Gangadhar knew he had to do some serious politicking to make it stick. He made the necessary changes to his will and had it read to the British representative in Jancy, A. Major Ellis. It stated, quote, I trust that in consideration of the fidelity of events towards the British government, favour may be shown to this child, and that my widow during her lifetime may be considered the regent of state and mother of this child, and that she may not be molested in any way. Major Ellis agreed to this manifestly sensible solution, as did the British regional representative, Major Malcolm. Safe then in the knowledge that he had safely passed on his crown to an heir and kept it out of British hands, Gangadhar Rao died in November 1853. However, they would all be double-crossed by the villain of the peace, the Governor-General of India, James Brown Ramsay, the Marquess of Dalhousie. Dalhousie had been appointed as Governor-General in January 1848, and it was his reforms and policies that would really kick off the uprising, so it's worth spending a little time looking at him in some detail. We'll come on to the doctrine of lapse in a moment though, because I'd like to start with his social reform. Company rule in India was often justified as all being about civilising the savage, undeveloped and stupid natives, spreading the benefits of superior Western education and technology, as well as the gospel of Jesus Christ. This thesis would be best enunciated by the poet Rudyard Kipling some 50 years later in his 1899 poem The White Man's Burden, written to justify the American annexation of the Philippines and celebrate the Diamond Jubilee of Queen Victoria. The poem starts, Take up the white man's burden, send forth the best ye breed, go bind your sons to exile to serve your captives' need, to wait in heavy harness on fluttered folk and wild. Your new court sullen peoples, half-devil and half-child. Now this is, of course, racist rubbish. And while it was used to justify some truly horrific atrocities over the years, its ideas formed the basis of some at least well-meaning endeavours. Dalhousie was, for example, particularly keen to improve the education system in India, and mandated the building and staffing of schools and universities, as well as the promotion of female education. He also passed a law permitting widows to remarry and to inherit property, which they previously couldn't do. Much of this, though, was couched in the colonial notion of Indian men being domineering, brutish and cruel, not only to their British masters, but also to their women. And unfortunately, Indian women were caught in a bit of a pincer, as Indian men saw their women as being effectively violated by colonial oppression and looked on with great suspicion and often outright hostility of their wives, sisters or daughters undertaking an education and going along with this infiltration of Western values. This cultural question also took in religion. The company was quite content to let Christian missionaries spread out throughout India an attempt to convert the locals away from their traditional faiths. And there were laws passed that favoured Christians over Hindus and Muslims. And this in some ways makes sense. If you truly believe that your faith is the one true path to salvation, why not save as many people as possible? Well, of course, there are very good reasons why you shouldn't do that, but those weren't apparent to the company. There were also economic reasons behind the revolt such as overtaxation and land confiscation, which angered local people, but to rulers, the great provocation was this doctrine of lapse, which we discussed earlier. This allowed the company to annex six Indian states between 1848 and 1855, the most important of which, for our purposes, was Jhansi in 1853. If you find it ironic that a company established by a queen in a country now ruled by another queen, found it intolerable to see another queen rule in one of their territories, then you're not alone. Wrong policy. Major Malcolm, the local representative, wrote at the time that Manu was, quote, a woman highly respected and esteemed, and I believe is fully capable of doing justice to such a charge. Others noted how diligent a worker she was, being a hands-on regent, passing very little of the business of state to underlings. She was also, despite what some nationalists would have you believe, not outwardly anti-British. If she did hold opposition to company rule, she kept her counsel to herself, and was always polite and diplomatic to the company. Following the British annexation of Jancy, she personally wrote two letters of protest, which drew attention to traditional Indian law and customs that protected adopted sons, as well as legal ambiguities which cast out on the basis of the decision. But these were ignored, and Manu was cast out of the palace with her son. She was granted a pension, and the jewels granted in her husband's will. This it seems at least a little bit generous on the face of it, but even here the company managed to be mean jerks, as they insisted that she pay all her husband's debts before inheriting a penny. By tradition, she is said to have exclaimed when hearing this, Mera Jansi Nahin Denge, I will not give up my Jansi. Now to the company, that was the end of it. Jansi was now under their rule, with the widow of the previous king cast aside. But that wasn't the end of it for Manu, nor the people of Jansi. To them, this was nothing short of a legal annexation and deposition. They didn't recognise the legitimacy of the company. Their true allegiance was to their queen, or Rani. And this was where Manu became fully transformed to her third and final name, and the one that we know her best by today, the Rani of Jhansi. But for now, she knew she didn't have the power, influence or might to take on the East India Company's army, any more than the Rhode Island National Guard could take on the United States military. So she continued down the legal route, hiring a British lawyer to argue her case in London. When that too was rejected, she was forced into the background, but her popularity never wavered and when a spark finally hit the dry kindling that was India a few years later, she will be ready to fight. And so we will end today with that spark. If you know anything about the Indian Rebellion of 1857, then you will probably know that it was all kicked off by cartridges. For over 100 years, ordinary soldiers under British arms had used the same weapon, the Brown Bess musket. It had gone through some development over years, but broadly speaking, soldiers fighting at Culloden, Yorktown, Waterloo and Kabul all fought with the same gun. However, in the 1850s, a new weapon, the Enfield, was introduced, with development rushed due to the Crimean War. This meant that it didn't arrive in India until 1856. Now, without wanting to get too technical... The Enfield, like the musket, was barrel-loaded, which meant that to fire it, you first had to get the cartridge, bite off the end, pour the gunpowder down the barrel, get your bullet, drop it down, ram it home, replace the percussion cap, pull back the hammer, aim, and fire. Right faff, right? Well, in the hands of a trained soldier, the Enfield rifle could fire about three or four rounds per minute, and this whole loading and firing system was constantly drilled day after day into the infantry until it became second nature. Now, the weapon didn't cause much trouble for a few months, but after a while, a rumour spread that the cartridges were lined with pork and or beef grease. Now, I haven't been able to find out whether or not this was true, but the important thing is that it was widely believed, despite it being roundly denied by the East India Company and the British Army. So why was this important? Well, to Hindus, cows are considered sacred, while Muslims consider eating pork to be sinful. Therefore, the idea of this grease touching the mouths of Hindus or Muslims was intolerable to them. And this was a huge problem, because the vast majority of the East India Company army were native Indians – also known as sepoys. These men were largely underpaid, poorly treated, and discriminated against in terms of promotion, but they had loyally served the company for 100 years. But a large number of them were either highly reluctant or outright refused to fire this rifle, as its loading procedure entailed biting into a cartridge tainted with sacrilegious grease. This led to whole regiments refusing to drill, and the outnumbered British officers could do little to make them follow orders. It all came to a head in March 1857, when Mangal Pandey, a 26-year-old sepoy of the Mangal native infantry, decided to rise up rather than be forced to fire the Enfield. He mutinied and shot some of his officers. He was joined by some of his comrades, but they were quickly overwhelmed. He was sentenced to death and hanged, and his entire regiment was disbanded. Just like with the annexation of Jansi, the British thought, that was that. Job done, let's go have some tea and cake. But while there were myriad socio-economic and political pressures affecting India at this time, it was this moment, this act of resistance, that triggered one of the bloodiest rebellions in history. While modern historiography derides Great Person history... Mangal Pandey goes along with people like Gavrila Princip in Bosnia, Mohamed Bouaziz in Tunisia, and of course our very own Joan of Arc. Ordinary people, who by their martyrdom set in motion enormous events beyond anyone's control. And next time, we will see the deadly course of the Indian Rebellion, and how the Rani of Jhansi came to become one of its great leaders.